Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Beautiful day here in Texas. Not a cloud in the sky, although there's an airplane flying by at about 200 feet, it looks like. So um, someone's kind of buzzing the uh, Dallas suburbs out here. Charlie, do you play Wordle? Do you like Wordle? I have never played it. I've seen never it pop up on Twitter, but I've assiduously avoided it. And I have assiduously avoided learning precisely what it is because I figure that if I find out, I will start playing it all the time. And I just don't want that. Well, they only do one a day, so you can't play it all the time. No, but I'd play it every day. That's true. But it's not a bad, uh, not a bad first thing in the morning thing to do. Um, I'm not especially good at it, although I do like to do it. People are sometimes a little surprised, if I may flatter myself, that I'm not very good at Scrabble. And I have to explain to people that Scrabble isn't really a word game. Scrabble is really a math game. Uh, that just kind of relies on words as an as an instrument to get there. My wife is very competitive, as you may know. And so that beep you just heard a minute ago was her sending me her uh, wordle this morning to let me know that I think she got it in, in one fewer than, um, than I did. Um, she's also, um, she's competitive on my behalf with our friend Jonah Goldberg, who publishes his uh, wordle score every day. And she lets me know whether I beat him or whether he beat me on any given day. It's kind of a weird thing to do, but that's where well, it you is. You don't publish yours. Well, no, where would I on the corner? Right, right. <laughs> I'll, I'll do a book in a couple of years and put all my uh, portal <laughs> scores in the end. This is a private it. rivalry where you do yours and keep them to yourself and Jonah does his and tweets them. Yeah. Um, one of the many upsides of not using any social media is that uh, – I don't have to uh, be tempted to do that sort of thing. It was funny. I got a um, request today for an event I'm doing later, and they're asking me, you know, can you please, you know, promote all this on your on your social media? I don't actually do any. And um, I really like working at that different pace. Uh, I know it's weird to say that a column a day or a column and a half a day is, is sort of a relatively slow pace, but it kind of is compared to, um, you know, people who are on Twitter 24 hours a day. Um, you know, with uh, 20 seconds between uh, takes and whatnot. Yeah, I am still on Twitter, but I rarely use it and I never read my replies. And I think people think when I say that it's some affect or bravado, mm -hmm. but it's not. I, I tweet out my pieces. I occasionally respond to something or defend someone. But I've just learned that reading your replies on Twitter or Facebook or even some emails... Uh, raises your blood pressure. There's yeah. so much willful misreading. I'm not talking about disagreement. That's fine. That's welcome. I'm talking about willful misreading. Argument for the sake of argument. I've just learned to tune it out. Well, the world's full of dumb and dishonest people, and social media is the most efficient way to interact with the dumbest and most dishonest of them. So, Also, I do think it corrupts your perception of the world and, yeah. and the country um you know, it's true that if you live in a bubble as the kids say then you have a false impression of how people think and what's popular and what's likely to happen and and so forth and you have to uh, ward against that and <clears throat> one of the ways to get around it i've found is to live in lots of different places uh, yeah. Know, since I moved to the United States, I, I look as if I've been on a quest to surround myself with Republicans because I started in England where there were none. And then I moved to New York <laughs> where there were very where there few, 
And then I moved to Greenwich, Connecticut, where there are more, but they're still outnumbered. And then I moved to Jacksonville, <laughs> which is right. full of them. <laughs> um, that's not the case. But what it has done is, is given me a, a nice little perspective. But Twitter actually is, is uh, if you were to, to turn it into a congressional district, a study showed recently, it would be D plus 47. <laughs> and that leads to some really strange outcomes. I mean, I, yeah. I know we want to talk about something else, but for example, this Florida bill about K through three education that apparently is pretty popular nationally, 51 to yeah. 37, but on Twitter is not. And if you spend too much time reading that and marinating in that, then you begin to, for better or for worse, misunderstand the people in the country in which you live. Yeah, it is easy to get false impression of things. I'm probably going to be wrong about some of the details here, but I remember reading something about polling during the Vietnam War. And if I'm remembering this correctly, there was not a period during the Vietnam War when the majority of the country was against it. And for most of the war, um, people under 30 or under 35 or whatever the cutoff for youth and young adults was, um, supported it as well. What we remember, of course, is the anti-war protests and the uh, and the crazy left-wing stuff on on college campuses and whatnot. Yeah, so it's it is also true of World War One. There's a terrific piece on the BBC, maybe ten years ago, pointing out that our conception of World War One is now disproportionately influenced by Oh, what a lovely war! And the British television series Blackadder goes forth, which is very moving and poignant. And is a great and coruscating criticism of World War One, but it's not actually reflective of what the average soldier thought. In fact, this piece looked at a great deal of uh, primary sources and opinion polls from the time and concluded that the vast majority of British soldiers were either bored or enjoyed themselves during <laughs> World War One. Now, of course, World War One was a horrific tragedy and it should never have happened and this is in no way to endorse it but that is interesting because growing up the impression that i was given was that everyone was angry about it and that they considered themselves to be lions led by lambs and that truth too is not true that this idea that these sort of upper class twits sitting 40 miles behind the line in chateau drinking champagne um uh, were, were the uh, the villains, there were a few of those. Uh, there were a few pig-headed generals. But actually, the officer class, uh, uh, which was drawn disproportionately from the upper classes, that's how Britain worked at the time, died at a rate of about three to one uh, compared to the infantry class. I mean, they were the yeah. people who walked out across no man's land first. They were the people who put their head above the parapet first. Um, it was just a fascinating piece because it, it mm. really did dispel a lot of those myths that have been passed down. Speaking of people who live in bubbles, there are some people, I think, who would literally encase themselves in a plastic bubble if that meant protecting themselves from COVID-19. And you were remarking earlier that it seems that in some quarters in the United States, people are clinging to masking and social distancing and other sorts of things of that nature more than they are elsewhere in the world. And I right now actually um, have been paying attention to other things that I don't really know what people are doing in terms of COVID uh, in Europe and in Asia and in the broader world. So why don't you um, lay your case out for me? 
Well, I'm keenly aware of this because COVID has interrupted quite dramatically my time with my family in England. They used to come over here relatively often. I used to go over there, sometimes with the family, sometimes on my own. And of course, that has happened a great deal less because of various restrictions. And so I've been very aware of what those restrictions are. When we went to Christmas, the restrictions in the United States and the United Kingdom were broadly symmetrical. Yeah. To get into Britain, you needed a negative COVID test. Uh, While in the airport and on the plane, you needed to wear a mask. And vice versa, once uh, it was time to go back to America, we needed a negative COVID test and to wear a mask on the plane and in the airport. But the British have abolished all of this. In fact, today is the last day that British Airways Virgin Atlantic Heathrow Airport will be requiring masks. Hmm. They haven't been obligated to require masks for weeks. Uh, Today is the last day that the British will require Uh, COVID tests or demand passenger locator forms or uh, really ask for any of the paraphernalia that's been associated with COVID. And and Britain is relatively late in that this has already been done by Ireland, um, Iceland, Norway. Mm. But let's stick to Britain because it's probably our closest cultural ally. Certainly it's the place to which Americans fly the most in the world to and from. Is it? I believe so. Surely it's Mexico. I could be wrong. Okay, anyway, go ahead. I I think the second... Probably the the non-adjacent country to which we fly the most. Yeah, I might be wrong. I I think the second closest was Germany. But anyhow... Don't trust those people. (laughs) We now have a situation in which if you get on a... British Airways flight from London to New York, you have to have proof of a negative COVID test, even if you're fully vaccinated, and wear a mask the whole way. But mm-hmm. if you get on a British Airways flight from New York to London, you don't have to have a negative COVID test, and you don't have to wear a mask. Now, I understand that the United States and the United Kingdom are different countries. I don't want them to be the same country. I think often it is a good thing that they have different laws. But I don't understand what's causing this, because there's no scientific case for maintaining a cloth mask uh, system. There's no international consensus or bilateral consensus here. The British are desperate for the United States to drop these rules because uh, it is hurting uh, travel between the two. The airlines in particular are desperate for the United States to drop these rules. British Airways, the Virgin Atlantic, have been pleading with the Biden administration. And clearly, Biden does not have his hands tied by Congress because last night... The Senate voted 57 to 40, I think, uh, to drop them. Yeah. So I I just don't understand why Joe Biden... They also voted to stay permanently on daylight saving time, by the way, which would be awesome. I hate changing the clock. Yeah, that's a a Marco Rubio obsession, actually. He talks about it all the time. I knew I liked something about him. Arizona had, uh, had done it a few years ago at the state level. Yeah. But anyway, my point here is not that Joe Biden is to blame for COVID. He's not, not in any way. He shouldn't have made all the promises he did, but it is not his fault. Not one death is Joe Biden's fault. But he does have the capacity to get out of the way. (laughs) And I just cannot fathom why the federal government is saying that we're going to extend these rules until the 16th of 
April and and then revisit them. And and yes, I have a personal interest in this because my parents are visiting in a week. So what are they doing right now? My parents who have been double vaccinated and boosted twice, what are they doing now? They are almost completely curtailing their personal lives so that they don't get COVID, so that they don't get Omicron. Because if they do, and it's picked up on a test the day before, they can't come over. Yeah. Which is silly because they're not at risk and they're not at risk to anyone else. And and it doesn't obtain in the other direction. So I don't know. Well, two thoughts about that. One, I'm glad to hear that the uh, United Kingdom is changing its ways because when I was there in November, I pretty well thought they were going to subject me to a colorectal yeah, screening on top state. of everything else. It was bananas. Secondly, I don't think it really affects you all that much because I, as I understand it, you're allowed to have your mask off if you're drinking. And I know for a fact that you drink all the way from uh from terminal to terminal well that's true but you know it it is a real pain taking two kids from jacksonville (laughs) to a bigger airport from that bigger airport on the plane over to heathrow and have it have masks all the time now um in in the the to britain direction much of that's now been abolished but on the other way around I mean, you're talking about almost a whole day with a mask on. Yeah. Not great for a five-year-old. Not great for anybody. I don't think no one seems to uh, enjoy that very much. So why do you think we are um, clinging to it? Because it got mixed up with culture war stuff the way everything else has? Yes. I can't prove this. This is pure conjecture. I also think that this is maybe one of the products of electing septuagenarian presidents that they are personally more nervous about their health which is rational and that they therefore make decisions for the country that a 40 year old wouldn't now we should be clear here that we elected a septuagenarian but he will soon be an octogenarian he will that's bananas (laughs) so anyhow i i think that Biden is really struggling to let this go, even though it's clearly in his political interest to do so. And you know, we talk about bubbles. It's got to be part of it. And he is surrounded by people who are overcautious on this. And I agree mm. that there are people who are undercautious on it. And there are people who are downright silly on it and say, I'm not taking the vaccine. It will ruin my DNA and all that nonsense. Yeah. But there is just no obvious input mechanism for this sort of safetyism. It's it's not popular. It's not mandated by Congress. It's not being demanded by our allies. Uh, there's no scientific evidence it makes much of a difference, especially on airplanes, which have extremely effective filtration systems. I mean, if we were following the science, you could just about make a case for masks in airports, although I think it's weak. But not once you're at 30,000 feet and the fresh air has been turned on. Yeah, if anything, what we should be doing is quarantining people inside airplanes, obviously. <laughs> just keep them up in the air like like nuclear weapons. Well, if they will keep bringing me champagne, I will volunteer. For this. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit more risk-averse than you are on a lot of this stuff, I think. At least I have been, but... Um, yeah, I think we're 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 pretty well done with it at this point. You know, we've done what what can be done, and it's probably time to um, uh, allow things to get back as as close to normal as they can, with the understanding that we're going to have uh, COVID for uh, a long, long time, and that um, there will probably be occasional flare-ups that have to be dealt with in some um, 
more robust way than just uh, laissez-faire. But um, for the most part, yeah, I think um, I think I've landed where you are, Charles. Aha! I was going to say rare agreement, but it's the opposite. It's true. Well, here's something we may we may disagree with about. Um, I've been writing and thinking a bit about uh, Russia this week and, and the war in Ukraine, as you know. And um, I've got a sort of inclination on that that I don't think a lot of other people do, or at least I haven't heard anyone really talking about very much, which is, you know, we've got this you know kind of cliche you hear in the in the foreign policy uh, pundit world of off-ramps. We have to give Putin an off-ramp, discover an off-ramp for Putin, which means to give him some face-saving way to um, end his engagement there, presumably at some cost to Ukrainian uh, sovereignty. And from the Ukrainian point of view, I certainly understand that they're going to want to um, stop the killing and the destruction of their country as quickly as they can, and that they'll probably be willing to pay some price for that that is higher than I think it would be in our interest in the United States for them to pay. But, you know, they have to worry about their interests rather than ours. But I don't think we should give Putin an off-ramp. I think we've got him kind of in a good position. He's in the middle of a failed military campaign. He's not going to achieve his political objectives there. Indeed, he's already arguably failed to do that. Um, by turning what should have been a display of of military power into a display of, of fecklessness and, and incompetence. Um, from our point of view, I think that's pretty good. We've got the whole world participating in what has to be the most robust and ambitious set of economic sanctions that's ever been directed against a major power, at least in in modern history. And I think what we should do is do our best to keep that in place. I think that we should maintain our economic sanctions on Russia, irrespective of what Putin does in Ukraine. I think we should just keep turning the screws until his government collapses. So I agree with the first part. I don't like the habitual references to Hitler. No. But I think it's instructive, perhaps, to compare this exercise in Ukraine with Hitler's early invasions in that Hitler came out of his annexation of the Sudetenland in a completely different position. And let's stipulate that, of course, the circumstances are different. But after Hitler's activities in 1937, 38, early 39, the world was shocked and appalled by his war machine. People were terrified of it. Blitzkrieg, the the quality of the communications, the dive bombers. Putin has actually achieved the opposite. Everyone's sitting around saying, well, he may have nuclear weapons, that's a problem, (laughs) but his army is weak and and feckless. Well, and that gets me to sort of my my next point here, if you don't mind the interruption real quick, which is that... um, Russia is not a major power. Uh, Russia is a small, corrupt, backward country with an economy the size of Florida's. The only reason that there is any deference, and there's a lot of deference, and we're you know worried about um, provoking Putin and whatnot, is as you as you allude to the nuclear weapons. 
And I think that if anything should be taken away from this, that our strategic imperative should be the nuclear disarmament of Russia. I think that once we have crushed them to the point of economic desperation and they're ready to try to buy their way back in to the world economy, that's the price we should impose on them. All right. Well, well, that that again. That that's the second part of your your point. I, I want to come to that because the the first part I think leads to our disagreement on the second part. Hmm. So, militarily, clearly, he hasn't achieved what he, he wanted to. Now, in terms of world uh, respect and alliance, as you say, no one is allying themselves with Russia, not even China. Hmm. Whereas Hitler, I mean, they still had a number of countries that were determined to remain neutral. They had a number of countries that actively wanted to sign up and become allies. Italy, the Soviet Union, until Hitler turned on them. And Putin has none of that. It's not, it's not as if the, the world has watched this and said, aha, that's our guy. Yeah. Um, and last of all, the Russian victories, uh, sorry, the German victories in 1937 and 38 increased Hitler's popularity at home. Increased and his, his international control. prestige. Yeah, whereas from what I can see, that has not happened in Russia. No. So on all three counts, it seems to me that you're right, that this has been uh, a failure. Now, you say, well, therefore, we should squeeze them and squeeze them and squeeze them. Kick them while they're down. Yeah, well, I am much more nervous about that than, than you are, I think. Um, firstly, because I think a lot of those goals have probably already been achieved by uh, their having been down. Um, second, because I do think there's a point at which uh, if you don't give people an out, they start to behave really irrationally. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of nuclear weapons. That's true, but Putin is not a one-man band there. He really is not... A, uh, a, a dictator in the classical sense. He is the face of an oligarchy. And uh, he needs those allies to govern, to keep the country under his control. And those people have interests too. And they have things like home addresses. And we know what they are. Uh, what does that mean? Well, that means we can make it clear to them that um, you know ultimately what they're choosing between is uh, stay on Team Putin and go down with the sinking ship or step up and stop him from uh, doing the worst that he may do and thereby save your own life and wealth and assets. What if, though, kicking them while they're down, tightening the screws, what you will, actually fails to separate them from Putin so much as forces them into a stronger alliance. I suppose that's a possibility. Um, I mean, none he's of these denouncing things are ever... some of them right now. And this, unless I'm yeah. misunderstanding this video from this morning, he's essentially calling them rootless cosmopolitans and yes. saying they live in different countries and they have the brain of a slave, whatever it was he said. Some Nietzschean uh, mm -hmm. type stuff he's got going on there. Yeah, I mean, none of these things are, are, are without risk, um, I don't think. But, you know, who's the superpower here? Uh, it's us. We've got easily, I think, the economic power, 
to achieve regime change in Russia through economic means alone. That doesn't mean that there won't be a military um, component to it because, you know, God knows what Putin will actually do once it's clear that he is on his way out. But I think we've got a real opportunity. I think he's unwittingly given given us a chance to um, achieve something that is of real long-term strategic importance to us and um, given us, you know, an excuse and an opportunity in a case of belly to uh, do it. So here's a related question. Suppose that Russia loses all its nuclear weapons. How many do we need? I, I, I'm asking this not not an exact number, but you know, do do you? Because there's two ways of looking at this. The, the first is um, that if no one else had nuclear weapons, we wouldn't need them either, and that was Ronald Reagan's view. And many right. conservatives and well. were irritated. Yeah, but then there are others who say, "Well, no, um, we're the only ones who are allowed to have them." Well, I think those are both um, defensible views. Yeah. I think that um, in the current situation, of course, it's preferable to have the United States have have nuclear weapons. Um, we can probably, um, with some work, and it's not going to happen the day after tomorrow, but force Russia to um, give up its nuclear arsenal. We can't really probably do that with China. And in the long term, if yeah. what we want to have is a situation in which nuclear weapons are not in play, then we're going to have to try to do successfully with China what we failed successfully to do with the USSR at the end of the Cold War, which is mutual disarmament. Now, do you think China is interested in that? I think there are ways to um, push them in that direction. Uh, For instance, putting the possibility of a nuclear Japan on the table. And why would that change their view? Because it will terrify them and uh, change the balance of power in the Indo-Pacific pretty much forever. They are very, very much worried about the prospect of a remilitarized Japan, and uh, they worry about that a lot more than they do about the United States, I think, currently. And a a nuclear Japan would be a real uh, problem on their doorstep. Yeah, it's it's. So I think they can see a situation in which they would prefer to see fewer nuclear weapons in the world rather than more, depending on where they're located. And then, what about the nations that aren't superpowers but have them anyway? Yeah, there are a few of those that'll have to be you know dealt with along the lines too. And I think to your earlier question, how many do you need? Well, the answer is at least one, and but some indeterminate small number um, is a really really powerful disincentive to interference. I mean, I think that's the lesson from North Korea, that we don't know how many nuclear weapons they have. Um, we know they've got some, and uh, we suspect that they might be inclined to use them. So they get a great deal of deference and special treatment that you know a similar country without nuclear weapons would not. And so, I mean, that's, that, that's kind of the overall strategic point here, is that nuclear weapons really constrain our options in the world in a way that makes having the world's most powerful military and its biggest and most diversified economy and all the rest of that a lot less of an advantage than it would be otherwise and uh you know it's not it's not just that these things are are moral outrage which of course they are um but there's you know a really good practical uh strategic reason i think for believing that um the united states would be better off in a world with with no nuclear weapons 
Yes. I just I I sometimes think about this at the micro level. Mm-hmm. You know, so one of the arguments that gun control advocates say is, okay, fine, I understand that, that you want a gun because there are 400 million guns in circulation and we can't stop criminals getting them. But if we could stop criminals getting them, would you be fine disarming? Now, one of my answers to that is no, because the government still has them, Yeah, uh, which I know people think is crazy, but f- just go read the history of the 20th century and get back to me. Um, but, but what if the government didn't have any? And then I think, no, I actually think I would still like to keep them. <laughs> and I never, but, but I'm not against determining who can have them and who can't. I mean, I, I don't oppose the law that says if you're a violent felon, you can't have a gun. I don't necessarily think it's going to work, but I don't mind it morally. I mean, this is an argument I had with Glenn Greenwald a while ago, 10 years ago, probably, was I wrote, look, I think the United States is far more moral than North Korea is, and therefore I'm much more comfortable with the United States having nuclear weapons than I am with North Korea. In the same way as I'm fine with my sister having a handgun, but not Charles Manson. Yeah. But then there are people who say, yes, but once you take the first step, you have the gun, then someone else wants one, and it sort of spirals from there. Yeah, I mean, that's a useful point of comparison, I think, but one that has its limits. Yeah. Um, You know, firearms are discrete, and nuclear weapons are not. Yes. Um, there's There's no responsible way to use a nuclear weapon that's why it's under the original public meaning of the second amendment nuclear weapons are ordnance and then we call them nuclear arms but they don't count as uh, as arms in the 18th century definition because you can't discriminate with them as you say yeah so i think that yeah i mean i understand the kind of moral point of comparison although you know i'll i'll say this if you know you could flip a switch and disinvent nuclear weapons um i would certainly be willing to flip that switch oh no question if you could flip a switch and disinvent uh small arms or magically make them such that uh you know they're useful for hunting and target shooting but not for uh homicide and whatnot um i'd probably be willing to flip that switch as well i don't know you see because with with nuclear weapons if you could i mean just on a practical basis, if you could flip a switch and get rid of all nuclear weapons in the world, then you would leave America at a greater advantage internationally than it had been before we'd started. Right. But if you could flip a switch and get rid of all firearms, you would actually leave a lot of innocent people at a disadvantage because uh, they would be easy uh, to prey on uh, by the strong. Yeah, I suppose. it, it And it also converts confers advantages on large numbers and that sort of thing so right yeah you've got some 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 fair points there certainly but i mean i would love a world without nuclear weapons if it could be achieved uh in which the united states had naval supremacy and air superiority and a bigger military than everyone else that was primarily used defensively um because it does complicate these questions and the united states is not threatened by russia except insofar as russia has nuclear weapons now, we probably couldn't invade Russia and hold it for very long, as we've learned <laughs> repeatedly uh, from history, but we don't want to. Uh, but they have nuclear weapons, so we have to be very careful with them. As you say, in North Korea, they have nuclear weapons, so we have to be very careful with them. And if you are unashamed about the benevolence of Anglo-American hegemony, as I am, if you think that Anglo-American naval supremacy has been a stabilizing force for two centuries, which I do, if you think that it is a good thing that 
the United States military enjoys the advantage that it does, then that's a no-brainer, I think, aside from the moral questions of nuclear weapons, which are enormous. Yeah. Anything else we want to hit? What are you writing about? Well, I wrote a piece saying Republicans would be crazy to nominate Trump. Yeah. Um, well, that kind of hits on something that's also on my mind. Maybe we'll talk about it for just a second before we close it out. I'm going to write about these um, curriculum transparency bills that are in the works in Arizona and a few other places. And I just have a hard time seeing any real decent, legitimate case against public schools being transparent about what they teach and how they go about teaching it. Um, I understand that there's been some, you know, buffoonery and misbehavior on the part of um, some, you know, activists. But this is one of the really sort of irritating things about our our particular political moment is that whatever political idea you have or whatever political tendency you have, left, right, populist, elitist, whatever, there's a dumb version of it. You know, there's an imbecilic version of every political idea, every political tendency, every political movement. Um, Treating the fact that an imbecilic version exists as discrediting the non-imbecilic version is um, something that we indulge far too often, I think. Yeah, I, I struggle to find a case against transparency in almost every realm. I, I yeah. understand it when it comes to, say, military secrets or spying or what you will. But, I mean, I'm forced to pay for public schools. I don't have a choice. And I am, per the Florida Constitution, via the school boards, allowed to determine what they teach. Yeah, And the parts of the curriculum that are determined elsewhere are determined by the state legislature for which I vote. I don't know where this idea crept in that this is some sort of First Amendment issue. There may be First Amendment issues at public universities, although I am not convinced from a legal perspective. I certainly am from a cultural perspective. I think universities should host all manner of debates. They should be the most open-minded places in the world. I'm not quite as convinced as others are that they are obliged to be under the law. But leave that aside. Public schools, they are already government institutions. They are already forcibly funded. They they are already determining what they will teach and what they won't teach. And it just seems so odd to me to say, well, you are illiberal or censorious if you believe that there are certain things that a five-year-old or six-year-old should not be taught. Leave aside sex for a minute. Leave aside race or what you will. I have a four and a five-year-old, and I have not, for example, told them about the Holocaust. Now, is that because I don't believe the Holocaust happened? No. Is it because I don't think the Holocaust is important? No. I will tell them all about it. I hope they will be taught about it in school and beyond. It is one of the most important topics uh, that anyone can um, study. But there is no great Uh, value in my judgment as a parent in sitting my four-year-old down and teaching him about gas chambers and mass extermination at this stage. He won't absorb it properly. He doesn't know the context. He doesn't really understand history as as a discipline. And I think it's fine to say 
these are my views on pedagogy in general. And I'm just a bit annoyed by the idea that 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 makes me, of all people, who is a free speech absolutist when it comes to private institutions and and adults, some sort of uh, moral sense. That's crazy. We all make these judgments all the time. Yeah, well, I think you should consider the possibility that maybe there's just something wrong with your kids. Because, you know, as someone who used to be on social media, I know for a fact that all of my progressive friends have (laughs) four-year-olds who ask them about you know, methane flaring and its long-term consequences yeah. on uh, climate change. <laughs> yeah. So maybe your four-year-old just needs to catch up, Charlie. Well, you know, that's another topic for another day, Kevin. But the, the use of children as political props is another revolting development that social media has made worse. Yeah, it is grotesque. All right, talk to you next week.